my friends who listen to Future Primitive. Today we have a return guest because both we and you liked him a lot. And our guest is deep psychologist Craig Chalquist, MS, PhD. He is a core faculty member in the East-West Psychology at the California Institute of Integral Studies, a former core, now adjunct faculty in the Department of Consciousness Studies at John F. Kennedy University and on the board of directors for Holos Institute. He is the author of Terra Psychology, Reengaging the Soul of Place, and Storied Lives, and the co-editor with Linda Buzel, MFT, of Echotherapy, Healing with Nature in Mind. He is also a master gardener through a partnership of the University of California with the U.S. Department of Agriculture. Professor Chalquist trains psychotherapists oversees thesis and dissertation work, and teaches graduate classes in psychology, mythology, eco-psychology, dream studies, qualitative research, systems theory, and union psychology on various Bay Area campuses. Welcome, Craig, and... Um, I was just browsing through your new website and I uh, want to ask you if you'd like to talk about uh, perhaps the spirit in which you put together this new website of yours. Hi, Joanna, and thank you for having me on Future Primitive. Um, part of my aim to, to do work on the internet, and um, whether it's my website, chalkwist.com, or Ecotherapy Heals, or I think I have a couple of other ones out there. Uh, but, but the main thing for me is I enjoy sharing my work, which is why I teach. And a lot of it focuses around this idea of deep education, which is education for transformation of culture. And by transformation, we mean uh, moving away from more acquisitive, uh, violent, crime-ridden, cultures that are full of prejudice and injustice more toward the kinds of community that we'd actually feel delighted to be a part of. And so all my efforts as an educator tend to center on that. So I, now and then I post things that I, that I hope will be helpful to, to move things in that direction. So perhaps uh, we will begin with, um, you have a, um, a piece you wrote on there called The Psychology of climate change denial. Yes. And uh, so you speak about what forms of denial, actually you mentioned a question that uh, was asked of you at Bioneers, which was when uh, a person hears the uh, true news about climate change, uh, this person might become more numb to the situation. Um, when I teach classes that deal with climate change, 
uh, the students and I talk about the different defenses that come into play, uh, numbing being the result of all the different defenses. When people are faced with knowledge that's overwhelming, and in this case, knowledge of climate change and mass extinction is just about the worst news that anybody could be handed on a collective level, mm-hmm. then we all tend to protect ourselves with various psychological defenses. We go into denial or we rationalize it away or we move into the child position and say that the adult experts will bail us out of the situation, that sort of thing. We have a lot of defenses for dealing with this. And so a point that I've been making recently to uh, two of Al Gore's Inconvenient Truth slideshow presenters is that they might want to have some of our ecotherapists and Holos Institute interns show up at their presentations so they can do small group with the group work with the audience to help people move from shock and numbness and paralysis through all the different feelings that come up and ultimately into action. I see. I see. So are you presently practicing uh, getting together with people in small groups and working on, uh, let's say, an awakening without fear about the situation? Um, I do some of that small group work in my classes, a bit of it, but primarily my work right now is in putting together and running ecotherapy and teaching in ecotherapy programs where our students learn to do that kind of work. So people can face their fears and move through all the other feelings too, the anger and the shock and the sadness, and then into something that's more productive um, in terms of what they can do about all these realities that we have to face right now. So you say that perhaps one of the um, uh, most important images that we were ever given was um, uh, the cat is sitting on my notes. <laughs> so we 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 have to make her move here. Oh uh, no. <laughs> okay. Um that perhaps one of the most important things that happened in the last uh what is it 50 years is um, is the rising of earth, the photo of the rising of earth uh against uh, the image of in, in in space and that we got to see our home. Uh, could you talk about that? Sure. Um, I was doing some research for a group called Opus Archives that's connected with my alma mater, Pacifica Graduate Institute, a few weeks ago, and I came across an article that was an interview um, with Joseph Campbell, actually a couple of interviews, with the great mythologist Joseph Campbell, who is talking about that Earthrise image. And it's, uh, we, I think we've all seen it. It's that famous photograph taken in, on um, the day before Christmas, 1968, of the Earth rising above the horizon of the moon. And for Campbell, this announces a whole new mythic image for our time. Uh, not not one particular story or one particular myth or even a whole bunch of them, but more like a mythic image, a mythology, we would call it. And he felt that in the era of Earthrise, a lot of the old contradictions uh, can be seen for what they are and gotten past and, and outgrown. And so just to, to name a few of them, Campbell mentions, and the, the astronauts who went up also echo his, his comments about this, 
that when you look at the earth from space, you don't see divisions of states or religion or anything like that. You see one planet with one people on it. And um, he also mentions that uh, until we see that image, we may be susceptible to all the ancient dualisms throughout history. Uh, heavens above, earth below, spirit above, matter below, and those sorts of divisions. And he says, but when you see earth in space, you realize that at a very deep level, if you allow yourself to, that all those, all those dualisms collapse because the earth is in the heavens. You speak at one point about... Um One night when you were in college, you were really depressed. It was, I think it was on Christmas night. And uh, you fell asleep and you had a beautiful dream. Would you tell us about your dream? Sure. I, um, I think I was, it was a combination of the holidays and reading too much existentialism or something. But um, I was in a, in a very down mood, very, very black depression. And I went to bed, and I didn't ask for the dream, but it, it came to me spontaneously, and I felt afterwards it was a gift. But um, it would take a while to tell the whole dream, but in part of it, I was sitting on the side of a hill with other people, and I was looking out over the most beautiful landscape I had ever witnessed in my life. And it was clean, and it was clear. The air was fresh. Um, there was a stream flowing. I could see clean forests in the background, and rain coming down, beautiful clouds. And on the hill that I was sitting on, there were lots of small buildings, little bungalows that people were living in. And they had been painted earth tone colors to match the hillside itself. And so as I looked around, I realized that this is actually a possible future, that we could, we could live like this on, on our earth in a harmonized existence. Mm -hmm. And um, I, I sat there for, I don't know how, how many hours in the dream and then eventually I woke up and my depression was entirely gone. It was I woke up feeling very happy about having seen that, having been been allowed that possible glimpse of something waiting up ahead of us. So Dr. Trollquist, why don't we live in that place yet? <laughs> um yeah, big question. It's you know it's gotten to the point where We're not being allowed to live in it. Um, a lot of my colleagues talk about, and psycho, some of the psychotherapist colleagues as well, educators too, talk about how, you know, we fail to deal with our own darknesses and we um, don't move past our own personal ignorances and we're all part of the dysfunction of the system. And, and that's correct as far as it goes. But it, we've reached a point in history where If we were to strive for that sort of life with enough effectiveness and enough numbers of people, we would actually be blocked on our way to it by institutions that make their money and get their power from keeping things exactly as they are. And we see that all the time. There was the, at one point in the, in the United States, we had a really great public transportation system of trolleys in many of our large cities. And this was back in the early 1900s. In public transportation accidents, there was the deaths came to something like three people a year through, you know, falling off trolleys or walking across the tracks at the wrong time. And then the, uh, you know, the automobile boom came on and the auto industries 
went to a great deal of trouble along with the tire industry and the, and the petroleum industry mm. to get rid of all that infrastructure. And so now we, lo- we lose more people to traffic deaths every year in the U.S. than we do to the wars we continue to wage. Wow. And, and, and it doesn't have to be that way. But it is that way now because when we strive for something better, there's a big push right now in California to improve our, our public transportation and, and in other parts of the United States as well. And invariably, it's the powers that be that say, no, we make our money in different ways, and then they, they prevent us from doing what we want. So it's going to take a lot of collective effort and togetherness and relationships and networking to really get what we want as a, as a, as a species on this planet and to really create forms of culture that delight us instead of making us sick or even killing us. Mm-hmm. But uh, what might be the equivalent of hitting bottom as when one might get sober from an addiction? Uh, what do you think it's going to take? Mm-hmm. Yeah, addiction is a good term because we are so psychologically dependent on all this machinery. It can start sometimes in, in very small ways. Mary Gomes was one of the founding, one of the founders of eco-psychology, the, the discipline and body of work that looks at our relationships, our psychological relationships to the, to the rest of the world, the natural world, the built environment more recently. And one of the exercises she does in her class is called a media fast. So she tells her students mm-hmm. for one week, um, you're, You're not to check your cell phones or email or be on your computer more than you absolutely have to in order to do things like school assignments. But for the rest of the time, make yourself not have contact with these things. Go outside and do things. So the students usually say that, uh, it reminds me of what smokers say actually when they're quitting, Hmm. that it takes about three days to really get past the craving to check email and go on the computer and see what's happening, that sort of thing turn on the TV. Mm-hmm. But then after three days, they begin to like it. They begin to feel more grounded and centered in their bodies and centered in the world. And at the end of the week, a lot of them continue to fast. Mm-hmm. So it can happen pretty easily. Well, well, with some effort, of course, but and I often think too of, um, I was part of a master gardener demonstration garden when I lived in Walnut Creek. And we'd sometimes bring kids to the garden to look at how fresh fruit and fresh food gets made and where it comes from. And at first, some of the kids grew up in the suburbs or in urban areas, and they were afraid to touch the soil uh, because they had been told that it was dirty or because they just hadn't seen much of it before. They they were raised on asphalt and concrete. But that, that fright and that strangeness wears off in about five minutes when kids actually put their hands in the soil and they smell it and they feel how good it feels and they hear about what's living in the soil. So to come back to ourselves sometimes doesn't take a revolution. It just takes maybe the, an internal evolution of sorts and a lot of encouragement from our cultural mentors. Mm. You see, that uh, stimulates the, the question I wanted to ask you, which is how much of our natural psyche do you feel is... Uh, is involved with the ecosystem, even if we don't live in it? Mm. I think our natural psyche is always part of the ecosystems around us and also the Earth itself. Uh, in a 
way you could look at humanity as an expression of the Earth's ecological thinking, or, or even to be a little more poetic about it, humanity is one of Gaia's dreams, <laughs> like other species. So we're, the strange thing about being human is, at least in our culture, we actually can entertain the delusion that we're separate from all of it and act on the basis of that which um, before he died, James Hillman referred to as a thought disorder. <laughs> mm -hmm. So you speak about eridigms. Eridigms. Oh, eridigms, yeah. Eridigms, yeah. yeah. Uh, would you talk to us about the different uh, periods, different eridigms? Oh, yeah. Um, eridigm was a, it's an idea, and I should probably spell it for the audience. It's E-R-A... D-I-G-M. It's like paradigm, but it starts with era, E-R-A, instead of para. Um, it started as a tool for myself, uh, because I noticed when I, I'm a student of history, and when I read history, I, there seems to be big pieces of it that sort of fall under the spell or the, or the influence of big archetypal images. So to, to be more specific, um, the... Uh, the last 400 years or so of cultural life on this planet dominated by the industrial and scientific revolution has found itself under the spell of what I think of as the big machine eridim. Mm -hmm. So an eridim is like a, it's a worldview that has an archetypal core, but it's not just a personal worldview, it's a big collective worldview. So as a result of the big machine way of thinking, We've come to see everything as made of parts that can be taken and separated from each other and analyzed. And we even think of ourselves and of reality that way. Descartes, at the beginning of this paradigm, talks about uh, animals as clocks. And um, I think at one point he even wanted to make a mechanical little girl. Um, he had lost his daughter to death, and he never really got over that. Uh -huh. Very sad, sad, sad story. Right. So that so before the big machine paradigm, and they seem to come faster and, and faster that, because we're so more globally connected these days. Before that one, the paradigm of uh, the, the feudal period in ancient history seems to have been one that I refer to as the heavenly city. And unlike the big machine, which is a very horizontal, expansionary paradigm, the the Heavenly City is a very vertical one. So if you think of Gothic spires and the old, some of the old dualisms I mentioned earlier, heaven up and matter below, um, the king's on top and all the subjects are underneath, man's on top and the woman is underneath, and those sorts of splits mm -hmm. characterize the, the Heavenly City paradigm. And before that, perhaps, going all the way back to before the agricultural revolution, um, the, the Mother Nature paradigm, which... Um, Carolyn Merchant refers to in one of her books as the organic worldview. So it seems like Earthrise announces a new paradigm, um, an paradigm that's more about things like systems theory and networking and interconnection and global consciousness. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And you write that um, the new paradigm carries a numinous charge and a vitality. So that's very hopeful that uh, through that image we would see ourselves as a community 
rather than a fragmented um, than a fragmented people. What are your thoughts on um, on our future here? I think it's a, a very uncertain future. I, I certainly agree with Joanna Macy when she says that we could we could become something magnificent and actually have a, a life sustaining civilization, or we could succumb to current pathologies and extinguish ourselves along with a lot of other species. That's that's a real possibility. We live in a time of real uncertainty. But having said that, it seems to me that the implicit in Earthrise is the participation and the and the not just face to face, but meeting each other all over the globe electronically in a lot of different ways. I mean, I, I think it's fantastic that I can get on something like Skype and talk to somebody in India right now if I wanted to. Yeah. and actually have a conversation. And it's not as good as face-to-face, but it's still a conversation. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I feel hopeful. But at the same time, um, the thing about a surfacing archetype, as Jung pointed out, is that if we, if we work with it consciously, great things can happen. But if we don't work with it consciously, it tends to dominate us. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of people... Who, and I'm thinking of scientists like Neil deGrasse Tyson and Carl Sagan and Einstein and a number of others who they, they may not have had the word aerodyne in their vocabulary, but mm-hmm. they, they worked consciously with the big machine to the point where they became scientists of wonder. And it's, it's nice to listen to them talk about science as a wisdom path. They all thought of it that way. That's beautiful. But if we are possessed by, by the big machine, then we get things like our current industrial food system or our current petroleum energy system that's destroying the ecosphere. And I think Earthrise Earth is susceptible to the same polarization. Um, my friend Larry Salzberg asked me when I was showing him, a, I have a slideshow called Earthrise, Beacon of a New Worldview that I had been showing in quite a few places. And I showed the slideshow to Larry and Linda Bazell, Linda Bazell and Larry Saltzman. And, um, he asked me a really great question. He said, what's the shadow of Earthrise? Mm. And we talked about it, and, and he said, I think it's globalization. So I, I ended up putting a new slide in there that talks about globalization as the shadow of Earthrise, the power of a multinational company to move across borders and across political organizations that are national-level organizations and have its will exerted all over the world. So there are these super organizations are now unconsciously drawing on the power of Earthrise to wreak havoc everywhere. Right. So that's the bad news. <laughs> right. The good news, right. though, is that if we get, if we align with this this paradigm consciously, we too can partake of that kind of numinosity and the charge that it brings along with it. Uh, going back for a moment to globalization being the the shadow of Earthrise. Um, it seems in personal work, if uh, if I face my shadow and uh, I dip down into it and make friends with it, then I can become more whole. How do you see that perhaps happening in terms of eco-psychology? There was a great comment by in a, in a video interview um, by Marie-Louise von Franz about shadow work, and she talked about how she was she she was saying it in the context of things like national socialism and uh, she said when you if you're if you don't do your personal shadow work 
you leave a door open in your psyche to the collective shadow. And so, you know, perfectly nice, decent people get possessed by the mythic force of somebody like a Hitler. Mm-hmm. They get possessed by isms, as Jung used to say. So in the same way, um, from an eco-psychological standpoint, it's incumbent on us these days to inquire into the, our personal corporate shadow and our personal corporate in the negative sense, mm-hmm. uh, our personal globalization shadow and, and how all those things land in our personal psyche, but as a way of moving beyond the personal into what these shadow forces tell us about shadows out in the culture. So it seems like personal shadow work in that sense can turn us toward the issues of the day and help us do work in the world. Okay. I was wondering when you teach in the classroom, um, what is uh, the response of uh, the younger people um, to whom you, you speak about these things? And what is, what is the state of mind of the younger generation in front of the, uh, the devastation that has been created to a certain extent ecologically? about uh, how you imagine the world, our world, uh, this planet in recovery. Give us the images that you get. Mm. Well, the ecological turn that we've all been seeing over the last um, three or four decades, I think, is a huge part of that. And some of that recovery is very evident today. I often think of the work of Wangari Maasai in um, Kenya and mm-hmm. Vandana Shiva in India. It's, it's happening all over the place. Detroit, New York City, they're putting gardens on the rooftops. 
So we can we can actually see it happening in bits and pieces. There's a some, there's a new, not exactly a field, but more a collection of fields called biomimicry. And the idea is to engineer things so that they actually are good for the Earth and uh, take advantage of the Earth experimentation over billions of years. And so an example of that would be if we have to build a tall building in the middle of the town, why not build it the way um, termites construct a termite mound? Because their buildings are, they, they cool themselves and heat themselves well, and they're structurally very strong. Or if we want material that's as strong as steel, instead of putting iron in a blast furnace and you know heating it up to temperatures that don't usually exist except inside of volcanoes, why not learn something from the spider who can weave web material that unit per unit is 100 times stronger than steel? How does she do that? Hmm. So there's a, even in, the, in science and technology or the whole cradle-to-cradle movement where if, if one business, let's say a business or an industry, produces a product and their waste product is heat, it just makes sense to put a business next to them that needs heat for its operation and then their waste product can be used by somebody else. And so you put it in a big circle. Permaculturalists often say that when we waste something, when there's waste out there, it means that we've broken a natural cycle somewhere. So Cradle to Cradle seeks to link businesses together that are not only friendly for the earth, but that eliminate waste. Mm -hmm. So there's many good things happening out there in terms of a better future. There was a a man who died, um, I believe it was last year or the year before, Ray Anderson, I talked a bit about him to, to my students. He he was the CEO of an organization called Interface Carpet, the business. And he was accused of being a, a waster and a plunderer by, I think, Paul Hawk, and I'm not sure about that. Somebody did. And, and usually name-calling is not an effective way to get the attention of the business community. <laughs> they don't like it any better than yeah. the rest of us, you know. <laughs> um, but he was, Ray Anderson actually could hear it, and, and he said, well, I don't want to be talked about like this, and I don't like the idea that I'm doing things that are harmful for the earth. So he went on this big, uh, he went on a big experiment to transform his business into a zero waste business, and it was well on its way to that when he died. And if you, if anyone goes to YouTube and they look up Ray Anderson, you'll probably see videos videos of him addressing a TED conference and other public venues. He was just an amazing speaker for sustainable business. And I'm sorry he's gone. We need uh, we need a thousand more like him. Yeah, yeah. So, um, shall we travel to Jung and uh, the Faustian ego in terms of um, seeking uh, repair and remembering? Mm. <laughs> yeah, the, the Red Book, right? Yeah, um, yeah. Uh, for those of you that, that don't know, it, the Red Book is uh, its basically Young's journal, um, which he copied from a series of black books into a marvelous, um, a marvelous document that looks like an illuminated manuscript. He wrote it in calligraphy. He accompanied it with paintings that he did. Young was an amazing painter. And the Red Book details four really intense years of internal psychic effort. It was Young's visions and active imagination and dreams uh, around the time the First World War started. An amazing document. And it's actually 
uh, has a lot of ecological references in it. And this is back in the 1920s when none of this was up for public consciousness at all, except in isolated pockets. So the, the Red Book, just an amazing document. And, and in the center of it is Young trying to give up what I, in an online paper, I refer to it as the Faustian ego of manpower and force and um, trying to get past that tremendous complex and have a different relationship with himself and with the deep psyche and even with the earth. Uh-huh. So um, Jung was uh, on a train once uh, in your piece on your website, I read, and uh, he had this uh, uh, very uh, scary vision of rivers of blood. And so that's how he decided to analyze himself, right? And uh, the First World War hadn't even happened yet. So um, can you speak about that in terms of facing the shadow? Yes, Young, uh, he, he faced the shadow, and boy, a whole cast of characters in the Red Book that he had dealings with. He, before the, the war came, about a year before, he was on a train ride, and he, had, he hadn't had visions like this before, so it scared him a lot. On the train ride away from home, he had a vision of a flood covering most of Europe, uh, a waking vision that really shook him. And then on the train ride back home, he had the one that you just mentioned, the one with blood covering most of Europe. And so Jung had been trained as a traditional psychiatrist, and his first thought with it was that he was losing his mind. So he said that he felt that he might be menaced by a psychosis, as he put it. And he had better analyze himself, or else how, how could he be of use to his patients? And so as the analysis proceeded into the images and the, the internal conversations that are depicted in the Red Book, the war started. And so Young had a huge aha moment when he heard that hostilities had broken out because he realized that his visions were connected not just to his personal descent into the underworld, but to an, a huge collective descent into the underworld as well. And so in the Red Book, he says something like, um, I sensed the war coming because it broke out in me. Mm. So he was struggling for a truly transpersonal psychology that would bring the personal and the more than personal together. And he knew from his own experience that very often what we take to be a purely personal conflict or point of issue or disturbance is actually a resonation with something that's going on all around us in the collective. Do you feel and think from your experiences that um, people are opening up um, more uh, from the personal to a collective consciousness? Mm, hard to say in terms of, for instance, the number of people, but You know, I think, I think maybe yes, because one of the things I learned in the years I did psychotherapy was that people come in uh, to talk to a therapist, not because usually they want to self-realize. <laughs> yeah. We would, we would joke about that. Where are the self-realizing clients? Mm -hmm. um, but because they hurt so much that their psyche's cracking open. Right. And one of the things that Jung gave us through his form of psychology was that this whole idea that 
when there's a deep rupture in the psyche, that's exactly when new things come to the surface. And so there's so much rupture all around us. There's so much ego catastrophe and financial catastrophe and warfare and all the rest of it, that this is actually an opportunity for people to be broken open enough, if they can, to reflect deeply on what all of it means. But the crucial thing is that they get the tools to do that. Because if they don't have that, then they'll just be in a panic or they'll just act out and do crazy things or... You know, as as just happened this morning, they'll sh- they'll shoot some people at the yes. entire state building. Exactly. I was, uh, I I really wanted to ask you what uh, if you could go deeper in what your thoughts are about uh, these um, these catastrophic eruptions that uh, we see happening. Mm, in in terms of in terms of these mass murders that seem to have been happening lately in uh, our society. Oh, yeah, boy, there's, I mean, it's a very complex issue. Um, because I teach systems theory, I sometimes wonder what they're expressing that's being denied by the entire rest of the cultural system. Yes. Um, you know, the outrageous violence that they do, the uh, homicidal thinking, the, the, the publicity of it, um, one part of it that I noticed, especially in the, the shooting that occurred in the movie theater, that I found particularly chilling, even even beyond the issue of letting unstable people have access to firearms, you know, which mm-hmm. is something that we're going to have to address as a, call, as a country, whether we want to or not. But even putting that aside for a moment, what I found chilling was at the Batman shooting, mm-hmm. That when the guy opened fire, the audience's first reaction, many people who were there, they said afterwards, those who survived, that they thought it was part of the film. They, they thought it was, they thought it was a, a demonstration, like a, what would be the right word? Um, uh, it was a promotion for the film, that some actor was, had dressed up. Wow. And that's terrifying when you think about it. I mean, that we, that we have so allowed the misuse of media and violent images in this country, that people can't even tell when they're actual victims anymore. Wow, what a concept. That's, that's extraordinary, what you just said, that uh, we might be so divorced from being grounded that we don't even know, like the, like the cat or the leopard, when we're being threatened. So how do we get out of that illusion, that terrible illusion, that virtual world? I think that's where our cultural mentors come in. At least that's, I mean, my own bias shows here, you know, because I'm an educator, so I tend to think in terms of educating people. Um, I often think that, just to take the, the, the mass media as an example on our exposure to it, you know, it's, it would be harder to come closer to, to Plato's parable of the cave, where in the original story that Plato told in his dialogues, that most people are like uh, the prisoners that are chained into a cave, and there's a flickering, there's flickering fire behind them, but they, they're chained in such a way that they can't turn around and see it. All they see are the images of shadows on the wall in front of them. And so because they don't realize their state of imprisonment, they think that the shadows are reality. But then somebody comes along who breaks the chains, <clears throat> runs outside the cave and sees the whole nature of the illusion 
and sees the world that's waiting outside the cave, and then that person goes back in and tries to tell the other people, you can throw these chains off and run outside. Mm -hmm. So maybe that's a model in some ways of the deep educator's task of awakening people to what's happening. And, and those people who are willing to wake up can you know, come to their own responses. What should I do about all this? What is it calling me to do? Mm-hmm. How can I link up with other people? Um, those sorts of things. Mm-hmm. And there's also the, the Rainmaker story. Yes, the- yeah, the, the emanation of internal work as well. Yeah. yeah the, the good that spreads out from people who tend their, the, the, inner, the inner world, contemplative practices, self-analysis practices, dream work, things like that, yeah. and the effect that has. You know, I, I just want to tell you that um, our cat is lying on, uh, as I said, is lying on my notes <laughs> and your bio and everything, and she's lying there so relaxed and she's holding my hand like she never has before. So I'm not going to push her away. <laughs> more, more important, she's, her, her sense of listening to you and holding my hand is more important than those written notes. You know, I think that's, that's part of the awakening, too, is that it's not just humans that are reacting differently now. It's our animal kindred who are our companions and they're telling us things and they're supporting us and sometimes they're scaring us, especially when they're undomesticated. Yeah. But but animals too are speaking up now. Well, this cat is sprawling, sprawled in ecstasy (laughs) and relaxation, so maybe that's a a good collective sign. So, Craig, uh, what are you passionate about at the moment? Hmm. Oh, all of this. Um, well, there's a... I should mention this, actually, because this is kind of up for me right now. Yes. I, um, so I mentioned Al Gore's slideshow speakers before. Yes. And uh, one of the things that I'm involved in right now is a conversation between... Uh, John F. Kennedy University, where the ecotherapy program is, and then my own school, CIIS, in San Francisco, and uh, Pacifica Graduate Institute, and also Holos Institute, about how can we encourage our students, especially the ecotherapy students and the psychotherapy interns, to work with people about how they how climate change is landing in them so that people don't stay paralyzed. Yes. So that's up for me right now. Um, in fact, I'm my colleagues and I at CIS, I work in East-West Psychology, and we're talking about designing a certificate specifically for training our students in how to do these sorts of, I think of them as eco-resiliency circles, circles where we can talk about um, what to do about all this, how it's landing in us, what we feel about it, and all these other things that come up when people discuss climate change, the impact of it, who's getting hit by it the hardest, which is an environmental justice issue. Uh, Primarily the poor and people of color are getting slammed by all the climate chaos right now, although it's spreading all over the planet. But, um, and the other term I have for these eco-resiliency circles is that I, I think of them as heartsteads rather than homesteads. Yes. A homestead requires lots of land 
<clears throat> but a hearthstead just requires a little room or, uh, you know, a scenic place outside where you can walk undisturbed and talk with other people. I also kind of like Aristotle's peripatetic practice, um, the way he would walk and talk with his students. So heartsteading circles that operate somewhere between the personal and the institutional, an in-between space where people can formulate new forms of culture and response. Okay. Well, I hope we can uh, put together some um, eco-resiliency circles all over the world. That would be nice. I would love if that happened. And we are emphasizing that, creating these safe heart, heart spaces, these, these heart steads, and then networking them together so people can support each other through these really difficult times that are upon us. Like right now, we're having an eco-resiliency heart stead circle. Yes. Yes. <laughs> yep, a circle of two. Yes. Yes, yes. And all the ones who will listen. Oh, three. I forgot the cat. It's yeah, the cat three. and four, which is <laughs> my trusted companion here. Uh, yeah. Craig, um, this has been wonderful. Uh, please take your time and uh Tell us what you would like us to hear in closing. You know, the, there was a, I, I knew James Hillman not well, but I, I talked with him at conferences, and he was so much against hope. <laughs> yes. It was, it was one of the big things we totally disagreed on, and he, he understandably felt that hope can take us away from the present and that hope can be a delusion. And, you know, when we hope that we're going to geoengineer ourselves out of this fix we're in ecologically, that, that's a form of false hope, you know, and, and he didn't like that idea. But um, I have to say that I'm, I want to make a distinction between false hope and genuine hope. And I think that big pieces of the population right now feel so hopeless that that's a key part of paralysis. And so um, I'm, I'm working... And I encourage other people to work on anything that looks to you like a project for hope in the genuine sense, because these possibilities for the future, better societies, a just world, aren't just future fantasies. They already live among us, and all they really need is to be put together and linked up. So any sort of deep cultural work that does that, I think, is, is a work of hope today. This is good. Encouraging hope. So thank you so much, Craig Trollquist. It's been a delight to be with you today. Well, thank you very much for having me on the, on the podcast again. I appreciate it.